This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 178 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. We're joined this week by Roman Sanikoff, Director of Cybercrime and Underground Intelligence at Recorded Future. The focus of our conversation is a report recently published by Recorded Future's InSict research team, titled Russian-Related Threats to the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. In reviewing the report's findings, we'll explore the methods Russian actors have employed in their effort to disrupt and influence the 2020 U.S. presidential election, the context within which these efforts are best considered, and how, as individuals, organizations, and nationwide, we can best counter these efforts to help ensure a safe, smooth election process. Stay with us. So I initially started out as an interpreter, uh, Russian to English, as you could probably tell by my last name. Uh, And I worked for um, many years as a contract linguist, uh, primarily for the Federal Bureau of Investigations. So between about the beginning of 1993 uh, till the beginning of uh, 2014, um, that was my primary contract was with the FBI. And around the year 2000, I started working primarily on uh, cyber criminal cases, uh, various. That's kind of when the first Russian hackers uh, became a thing. Uh, and uh, I worked with the FBI doing a lot of research uh, on various underground sources and forums uh, and uh, really working with them um, on these various investigations with uh, foreign law enforcement as well including representatives, law enforcement representatives from Russia, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, uh, Kazakhstan, the Baltic countries, uh, etc. Then in uh, 2014, um, I decided to go into the private sector, and I uh, spent about uh, two and a half years working uh, as the lead uh, e-crime analyst uh, at uh, CrowdStrike, and then as the director of uh, European intelligence at uh, Flashpoint, also for about two and a half years. And now I've been uh, with Recorded Future for about a year and a half, uh, heading up their uh, cybercrime and underground intelligence team. Um, And what uh, our team focuses on primarily is, uh, as you can imagine, criminal activities, but also pretty much everything that's not specifically linked to nation state actors. So we also investigate extremist content, uh, terrorist, domestic terrorist, uh, hacktivist, um, all of that kind of uh, uh, activity on various underground uh, and chat resources, uh, forums, services, etc. Well, we're going to uh, spend some time digging into the report that uh, you and the INSIC group published. Uh, it's titled Russian-Related Threats to the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. Uh, before we do, though, I'd love to get an insight from you. With your background, uh, your, your deep knowledge of uh, everything having to do with Russia, Russian language, and all those sorts of things, their, their techniques. Um, is there an overarching sort of insight that you think it's important for people to understand as, as they explore this topic? Or are there things that, you know, those of us uh, in the West, I'm thinking, you know, particularly here in the U.S., that are there things that, that we kind of get wrong or things that we could do better by having a better understanding of? I do. Um, I think one of the things that 
is natural is for people to always look at something that's happening to them uh, through their own lens. But um, all of these activities, including uh, information operations, they're really motivated primarily by uh, domestic, uh, domestic considerations. So whether it's China, uh, whether it's Iran, uh, North Korea, or Russia, uh, one of the leading drivers behind everything they do uh, externally is really how will that affect uh, the, the domestic politics. Uh, so, and that's something that I think a lot of times we don't really uh, we don't really think of. Uh, for example, why uh, some of the some of the activities motivated by the way it may be perceived by people locally. So some of the things that Russia does against the West or in the West really is not just to affect what happens in the West, but also uh, to change the way the West is viewed domestically in Russia. Um, so I guess kind of jumping into what we've seen in some of our, our research is that um, it's very much influenced, again, by the domestic message and the domestic effects of these uh, of these actions uh, within Russia. Hmm. Well, let's uh, let's dig into the report here. Why don't we start with some high level stuff here? I mean, what prompted the creation of the report? Well, uh, obviously, the uh, elections coming up are uh, a very important election and uh, important, probably not only domestically in the United States, but uh, around the world. Uh, I think uh, we can probably all agree that the policy differences between uh, the current administration, uh, between the Trump administration and any potential Biden administration would be quite stark, uh, both uh, domestically in the United States and uh, overseas. So I think there's a lot of interest in this particular election, probably even more so than any of the recent elections uh, in the United States. So partly because of that, and then also because we've seen so much activity by Russia and other uh, powers, again, like China, Iran, over the course of the last uh, several years, uh, we felt that it was very important to really uh, look at what is happening right now, compare it to what we've seen in the past, uh, and maybe even uh, kind of not necessarily predict uh, but to say these are some of the things that we should be on the lookout for in case there is uh, active uh, election meddling. Well, let's go through the report together. I mean, what are some of the, the key findings? What are some of the things that, that you think it's important to highlight? Well, one of the things that we found, again, we took a look at uh, not just Russia, uh, but other countries as well. And one of the things that we uh, think is particularly uh, dangerous or particularly of interest about Russia is that while certainly China, Iran, North Korea, and potentially other countries as well outside of the big four, so to speak, are uh, involved in uh, information operations, maybe even disinformation campaigns, most of those are targeted primarily at topics or issues that relate specifically to them. So, for example, China and Iran are working primarily to improve their own image abroad uh, and to affect anything that works 
um, any issues and topics that are tied specifically to them. Russia, on the other hand, I believe, or we believe, uh, is uh, more uh, dangerous because they are involved in various issues that don't necessarily even affect them in any way, uh, that they are really trying to create uh, a level of instability uh, in uh, the West, uh, in kind of uh, the traditional liberal democracies, including the U.S., uh, that is uh, a step above what we're seeing with uh, some of the other um, other countries that are involved in uh, influence operations. So that's one of the uh, kind of key findings that we've seen mm-hmm. is that Russia, uh, their information operations, their disinformation gets involved with various topics that aren't directly influenced, uh, that they're not directly influenced by so a couple of things that, that uh, jumped out to me as I was reading through the research here. Um, one of them was, you know, looking back on the types of things that you were tracking in 2016 and then in 2018, that um, you haven't really seen overt examples of those things so far as you and I record this heading into 2020. Yes, uh, it seems like they're being a lot more uh, careful um, uh, in any of the uh, actual hacking or actual um, operations, um, still there certainly is a lot of disinformation, uh, a lot of um, information operations that are being uh, conducted. Uh, We are not seeing the same level of uh, hack and release that we saw going into the 2016, uh, or even some of the other types of uh, other elections uh, overseas. For example, we're not seeing something that we saw with the Macron leaks, uh, where um, some documents uh, around the Macron campaign uh, were leaked shortly before uh, the uh, French uh, elections. So we're certainly not seeing that. Uh, That said, uh, we still do have, uh, I believe, seven weeks approximately before the election. So there's certainly still room for an October surprise. Uh, But I think what we're probably seeing is much more um, concerted effort by uh, the intelligence community and by the campaigns here in the United States to prevent that activity. Um, Certainly, we recently saw uh, the uh, report by Microsoft saying that there are attempts, uh, but that largely those attempts have not been successful. So I think that this is probably, at least partly, a reflection of the fact that um, things have changed since 2016. I think that uh, uh, both public and private sector uh, companies are a lot more uh, aware of uh, what's uh, of what's what the dangers are out there. Can you give us an overview and some insights into? Um, what the spectrum of things that, that you expect to see from a Russian disinformation campaign? Sure. Um, one of the interesting things about the disinformation campaigns uh, that uh, Russia has sponsored in the past is they're really agnostic. They're really meant uh, not just to affect uh, specific topics, but really to uh, cause uh, some chaos uh, and to really uh, create as much as much of a destabilizing force as possible uh, in the West. Uh, So, for example, uh, we've seen 
Russian actors uh, behind uh, campaigns to start uh, competing marches. Uh, so you had literally had uh, Russian-backed uh, actors who were sponsoring uh, kind of uh, protests on both the left and the right at the same time, uh, presumably in an effort to get a confrontation, to get some sort of conflict going. Uh, again, this goes back to something that they can then really publicize in the media in Russia, uh, you know, to make the West, uh, that's always been kind of this beacon um, of, uh, uh, of freedom and democracy, uh, look uh, much less appetizing uh, to the domestic uh, audience, seeing that, you know, is this really what you want your country to look at, uh, to look like, uh, where mm. you have uh, uh, individuals rioting in the streets and burning places uh, and uh, frequently really uh, exaggerating uh, the uh, what has happened. Uh, for example, we've seen uh, Russian-backed actors uh, posting on social media pictures of um, uh, law enforcement, uh, actually Australian law enforcement, that was injured uh, several years ago during some operation, uh, but posting it now as if this was something that was happening uh, in on the west coast of the United States and that these uh, officers uh, were uh, severely injured uh, by uh, the uh, rioters uh, in Portland uh, and uh, Seattle. Um, so again, uh, really using this information to make uh, the situation in the West seem even more chaotic. Um, but again, interestingly, there I think there is some sensitivity now, even domestically in Russia. So they have to be a bit more careful. So, for example, when the movement after the death of uh, uh, George Eliot um, uh, happened, uh, where the, the in Minnesota, in various cities around the uh, around the country, uh, when you saw those uh, uh, those demonstrations crop up or uh, rise up, uh, initially the uh, there was a lot of uh, really publicizing of that uh, again by Russian media, uh, both overtly and covertly, uh, both by official Russian media and by social media sources. However, uh, what happened shortly thereafter is that uh, these demonstrations and the, this topic was taken up by Russians in not in a way that I think the Russian authorities had expected, uh, not in a way of, oh, look, you know, look at this chaos. This is not what we want. Instead, there was actually a hashtag movement called Russian Lives Matter, uh, where they were saying, hmm. Look, the Americans are rising up against police abuses. We have a lot of police abuses, including people killed by the police in Russia. Why aren't we rising up the way they are? So in response to that, the narrative around the demonstration, the protests, the riots uh, quickly changed uh, among Russian media, both of the official uh, media uh, and the social media, where they weren't really glorifying the actions of the protesters. Now they were talking about this in a negative sense, that this was uh, that this was chaos, that this was, uh, uh, you know, uh, improper 
way to show your protest, etc. Uh, so it really kind of, again, goes back to my what I said initially. A lot of times we are look at actions of foreign adversaries only through our lens. We don't necessarily look at uh, what's motivating them on their end and what is the kind of end result and the goal uh, from from their perspective. Yeah, that's a really fascinating insight. And I, I'm curious, um, you know, how much of their success comes from uh, sort of a, the structural vulnerabilities of our own system? You know, the fact that we have a free press, the fact that we have, you know, a First Amendment, that, uh, that our social media platforms are so open uh, you know, do those, are those things that, that we consider to be fundamental parts of our democracy, in a way, do they play into their hands? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I'm going to uh, butcher this, this quote, uh, but uh, there was actually a uh, Russian intelligence officer uh, or Soviet intelligence officer going back to the Cold mm-hmm. War days that said that if the West hadn't uh, invented a free press, we would have had to invent it for them uh, to to destroy them. So really, uh, that is one of the main throughout the Cold War and really, unfortunately, into the post-Cold War period and into the present period, um, our own uh, freedoms are frequently used against us uh, by our adversaries uh, who have much more tightly controlled media and tightly controlled media environment uh, in their countries. Um, so uh, it really is uh, asymmetrical warfare, so to speak. Uh, it's a way for them to uh, go after uh, the, the kind of Western democracies uh, in, in a way that uh, is relatively inexpensive, uh, that does not require a significant kind of military buildup. Uh, but still does quite a bit of um, uh, really kind of social and moral damage uh, to those uh, to those countries. Yeah, and it strikes me that we we find ourselves with this you know this ongoing since since 2016 I suppose this this ongoing peculiar deference to the Russians you know from the executive branch of of our nation, um, which I suppose you know. It, uh, emboldens them to to act without fearing real strong retribution from the U.S. Um, I tend to agree. Um, I tend to uh, think that we have really not. You know, you see, for example, how strongly we've gone after uh, China and some of the Chinese uh, threat actors. Certainly, we've seen indictments, uh, and uh, that's. Uh, uh, that's as it should be. We certainly should be going after anyone who's involved in uh, either criminal or nation-state espionage activity. But really, when it's come to Russia, if anything, I think the administration has kind of undermined the intelligence community, really second-guessing a lot of the findings coming out of the intelligence community, uh, or even ignoring a lot of the findings coming out of the intelligence community. So there's really been uh, very little uh, repercussion uh, to Russia uh, for uh, some of the uh, actions that they've taken against some of the offensive actions that they've taken against uh, the U.S. You know, as we head into the election, and as you mentioned, you know, we're, we're weeks away, 
what is your outlook? Are, are you optimistic that, um, that we have uh, effective ways to, to counter the things that are going to be coming at us? Where do you suppose we stand? Um, so I am uh, cautiously optimistic uh, because I do feel that uh, people are familiar enough with the threats to our election that hopefully they will not jump to any conclusion in case the election day itself is a bit more chaotic than it normally would have been. Obviously, with COVID, there's going to be a lot of different factors, uh, including mail-in ballots, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, but I'm hoping that people are going to be a bit more understanding uh, than they may otherwise be. Again, knowing that uh, there are these threats to the elections. One of the things that I think we particularly need to watch out for, though, is uh, we've seen in the past uh, Russian uh, state-connected actors use uh, a combination of hack and release and also uh, fake documents. Um, so, for example, we saw uh, information at the end of last year uh, that there was a phishing campaign against Burisma. Uh, and to this date, I don't believe we've seen uh, any of the actual documents that may have been taken during that phishing campaign. So certainly it's something where uh, Russian-backed actors could release information uh, that may have been doctored uh, or maybe fake uh, to look like it's uh, embarrassing uh, to uh, one of the candidates uh, and make it look like it's legitimate, authentic, because it came uh, supposedly from this hack documents collected from uh, Burisma. Again, that's just an example, uh, but we've seen that before where uh, they've used an actual hack or a purported hack uh, as a way of giving legitimacy uh, to documents that really um, are not uh, legitimate, uh, that are fake. Um, so that's something that I think we should be really on, on the lookout for. And then finally, uh, just... Uh, the idea that somehow these elections will not be legitimate, uh, that they will that there will be massive fraud, is something that certainly has been encouraged uh, by a lot of the Russian disinformation uh, campaigns, uh, and uh, I think that's something that really the public has to be uh, on the lookout for: uh, fake information around polling uh, and uh, uh, fake polling sites. Uh, and things like that. Uh, they have to be, uh, not just the public, but certainly uh, the various states and the elections com election committees have to be very careful for any uh, erroneous information uh, that may be, that is being put out there uh, by various actors backed by nation states. Our thanks to Recorded Futures' Roman Sanikov for joining us. The report from the Recorded Future Insect Group is titled Russian-Related Threats to the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. You can find it on the Recorded Future website. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly, 
The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.